You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. Welcome back to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast with myself, Ryan Walker. In this episode, we're going to be speaking about point-of-care ultrasound in critical care with Dan Nevin. What I wanted to do is examine the utility and function of ultrasound within air ambulance services. So we're going to look at the aggregation of data and the familiarity with ultrasound and how that's narrowing down and assisting time to intervention on scene. We're going to also discuss some of the scans of preference and some of the data, uh, which is really starting to uh, change the way we approach and deal with uh, pathologies such as pneumothoraces, tamponade, and indeed other positive findings. So most importantly, we're going to get Dan's perspective on where ultrasound is affecting patient care and where he sees the future of ultrasound going within pre-hospital care. So Dan Nevin is a FEM consultant with London's Air Ambulance. He's also an anaesthetist with Barts and the Royal London NHS Trust. So he's spent many years working and indeed training within South Africa, where he originally trained and now working in the UK. So his special interests include trauma, critical care, anaesthesia and FEM. And he's also the lead for London's Air Ambulance for ultrasound and has been leading uh, point of care ultrasound within the service. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. Thanks very much, Ian. Thanks for having me. Very, uh, very pleased to be here. Uh, could I just get you firstly just to speak to why point of care ultrasound has become uh, a valid tool to sort of assist patient assessment within within critical care? Ah, uh, yeah. So, I mean, largely uh, point of care ultrasound for us is just uh, starting to try and um, uh, drag some of our patient assessment into the 21st century. Um, our service, uh, one of the consultants in our service recently published a paper on um, the utility and the sort of uh, sensitivity and specificity of our clinical examination of patients in the pre-hospital environment and just how limited we are with our basic tools, which are our eyes and our ears and our hands. Historically, we consider ourselves, you know, um, very, very uh, skilled clinicians and very sensitive to picking up the uh, injuries and trauma patients. But realistically, trauma is diagnostically done with radiology. So I always talk about the CT scanner as the donut of truth. And that's where you really get down to the bottom of what actually, you know, the injury burden on the patient is. You can only surmise or, you know, pick up grossly abnormal findings outside the hospital and the pre-hospital environment. So it became a sort of logical conclusion that once you have a way of looking inside the body, looking into a body cavity, that actually this must become an adjunctive element to our clinical examination. Uh, and we found, you know, as, as I'm sure we're going to explore over this podcast, we found some really interesting things as we've started to add ultrasound to our clinical examination. Uh, and it just, um, you know, when you pull someone out from under a truck or under a train uh, and, you know, they're, they're hypertensive and tachycardic and they've got, uh, you know, a, a clinical picture of shock and a multi-system traumatic injury, it becomes quite important to try and pick out where the, where the problems are, which body cavities the patients are bleeding into, or, you know, maybe one, maybe several. Uh, and adding that as an adjunct, uh, you know, has really become useful diagnostically for us. We've also found that historically some of our approaches to traumatic injuries have been very aggressive. Uh, and actually by being able to be more diagnostically accurate, we're able to dial back 
on some of those procedural elements that before we would have a low threshold to deliver because we couldn't be certain that 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 pathology was there or not so we would proceed to treat it as if it was there and now we can actually have a look and go oh actually he doesn't actually have a pneumothorax on that side we don't actually need to decompress that side of the chest and actually we can look for the problem elsewhere uh you know fall back on whatever else we found as as being the major issues here so that's where we found it start to become really useful what's also been interesting is the undifferentiated shock picture patients where we think we have a handle on what's going on so we think they're bleeding and then we scan them and we discover they aren't and then we realize that actually they've got a devastating traumatic brain injury and this is a neurogenic picture uh, or quite frequently we go to patients who've been stabbed in the thorax or the abdomen uh, and it's you know you might have a suspicion that there's a pericardial collection but it's pretty interesting when you put that probe on and go whoa okay whoa with the, we are definitely dealing with a patient with a pericardial collection who is peritamponade, and it really changes the way we address and approach the pace uh, and the intensity with how we drive those scenes and those jobs. Similarly, it can be equally reassuring to arrive at someone who looks pretty awful and you're like, oh my God, what is going on here? This guy looks like, you know, he could be peri-arrest and I think he could have a tamponade. And we'd have a low threshold for delivering something like a thoracotomy for that patient. And you put the probe on and you're like, oh, wow, okay, that's pretty reassuring. His heart is thrashing away and it's pretty empty, but actually he doesn't have a collection there. And actually this guy is just hypervolemic, he's volume deplete. We need to restore that. And actually like we can, we can calm down in terms of pulling out our thoracotomy kit and getting out our surgical gear. So, you know, we're finding it speaking into a lot of elements of our patient care, diagnostically and therapeutically. And also, I think probably just in our crew resource management and how we determine the pace and the intensity with which we want to run the job. That's really useful, actually, Dan. And as, as you say, the pointed questions, and it's an adjunctive tool uh, alongside, like so it doesn't replace the the physical assessment, but what it does is, it, like you said, it, it it gives you that visibility and that repeated visibility that 5, 10, 15 minutes, you know, put this put the probe on, see if there's, there's any any difference in 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 bleeding or indeed in a, a, a pericardial collection. But could you could you maybe speak to whether you align to sort of certain protocol um, when you're when you're scanning patients, are you, are you quite prescriptive? You know, how how are you approaching the, the 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 scanning? Yeah, absolutely. So this is one of my favorite topics, actually. So, um, you know, different air ambulances and different pre-hospital services approach this problem very differently. Um, and in the United Kingdom, a lot of emergency physicians, for example, as part of their training, are automatically accredited in level one ultrasounds and that sort of thing. We, we have taken a slightly different approach. So we have a very bespoke, but very specific and actually a very directed and very didactic approach to how we use point of care ultrasound in our service. And I kind of think that you probably need to tailor it like all the pre-hospital care to your environment and to your workload. So we are a primary response trauma service dedicated to the city of London. Uh, we go exclusively to trauma. We don't go to medical emergencies. We go exclusively to primary response. It is within our remit to do retrieval work, but we virtually never, ever do it. We are primary response, pure trauma. Now we looked at, when I was putting the ultrasound protocol together, we looked at various different uh, protocols, you know, the rush protocol and the, uh, 
uh, you know, Fusic and Feist and uh, Fast and eFast. And, and what, what I did was I took all of the stuff and I had a look at the evidence and I put all of it together. And then we did what we do fairly typically in, in uh, doctor-delivered uh, high-end um, high pre-hospital care services where we take a complex in-hospital intervention, we then strip it out, we break it down to its absolute essential nuts and bolts and go, okay, which are the bits that are really essential here and which are the bits that are completely nice to have and that we would probably not bother with? And then we build it back into a simplified protocol. So we are basically probably a modified rush protocol if, uh, if you wanted to be a strict purist about it. But we've taken some of the elements out and we've gone one step further in that we simplified things even further because we are often, uh, well, pretty much exclusively on the scene with a complex, critically injured trauma patient several times a day in London. Uh, we are making high stakes decisions in a complex environment under time pressure. So our, uh, our protocol needs to be very, very quick to deliver. We do not have uh, the opportunity to spend five or 10 or 15 minutes scanning patients. So what we did is we took all the protocols, we amalgamated them together. I looked at the evidence of the best important elements of every bit of, of all sort of e-fast uh, uh, point of care ultrasound. And we've broken down it into a very simple didactic protocol that we call pump, pleura, and pouring blood. Uh, and this is this protocol is um, is binary. So we are aiming to ask uh, ask and answer binary questions um, and rule in or rule out uh, specific diagnoses relevant to our patient profile. So when we say pump, the pump element of our scanning protocol is not even a full transthoracic echo series. It is a single subcostal window of the heart. Now, according to the literature and certainly to our clinical practice, that you can identify about 95 to 98% of the things that we need to see from a single subcostal window. Uh, now, that's not to say we don't allow clinicians to use other windows of the heart. And where other, window, uh, where other clinicians are trained and accredited, we will review and comment and feedback on all elements that they scan. But the single piece of the pump protocol is a single sub window of the heart. And the questions we're aiming to ask and answer are, is the right ventricle dilated or does it look normal? Is the left ventricle pumping normally or is it pumping essentially like a wet paper bag? Does the left ventricle look full or empty? Is there a pericardial collection or not? simple, straightforward, binary questions that you can, you can determine without any measurements, without any advanced modes, without putting calipers and measuring numbers just with your eyeball and a single sub window of the heart. The pleura component are two bilateral windows of the heart. Uh, I mean, not the heart, the lungs. And we are, uh, and we we do those two windows on any part of the lung that is the most anterior, where you would see a collection of air in a patient who has a pneumothorax. And all we are looking for is the presence or absence of lung sliding and the presence or absence of bee lines or comet tails. So we're looking to identify the presence or the absence of a pneumothorax. And then the pouring blood uh, component is we are looking for massive hemothorax or massive hemoperitoneum. And we do one right-sided um, sort of costal margin window. So 
People would argue that you should do the full fast scan. We do not do the full fast scan. The most sensitive window of the fast scan is the right upper quadrant window where you can see Morrison's pouch, so long as you include the caudal tip of the liver. So we teach our clinicians to do a right upper quadrant window of the fast scan, looking into the abdomen, looking for Morrison's pouch and the caudal tip of the liver, which is where blood collects before it tracks into Morrison's pouch, okay? And from that window, you can see blood between the hemidiaphragm and the liver. You can see blood in Morrison's pouch. You can see blood at the caudal liver tip. You can also move the probe upwards towards the chest and you can see blood in the right hemithorax uh, and just at the low margin of the lung and the hemidiaphragm. And then we do a second window on the left side of the chest. And that would be essentially like the splenic window of the fast, but we're not actually looking into the abdomen. We are not concerning ourselves with the spleen. We are not concerning ourselves with the kidney or the spleen or renal uh, angle there. We are looking to find the hemidiaphragm and we're looking for a collection in the left hemithorax. So on the right side, we're looking for a right-sided hemothorax and we are looking for hemoperitoneum. And on the left side, we're looking for a he, uh, just a hemothorax. So with a pump, you get one window of the heart. With the pleura, you get one window of each side of the chest. Uh, and with the pouring blood, we are looking to see whether you're pouring blood into either of your two thoracic cavities or into your hemoperitoneum. Now that's our protocol. Uh, we are very specific. We are very didactic. But what we do allow the clinicians to have some free reign is where in the job phase they deploy the protocol. So sometimes the, the nature of the job necessitates that you scan the patient actually on the scene and on the job. Quite frequently though, we find that our clinicians are scanning the patients in the back of the ambulance en route to hospital when they've already delivered some of their interventions and they're now honing in diagnostically uh, to see patient progression and progression of physiology and to identify further the, uh, the areas of injury. Um, and the other thing that we allow the clinicians to decide is that if they have a simple or single uh, clinical question that can be answered by only one element of that protocol, they only need to scan that element. So typically what we see is patients who've been stabbed in the torso, they often get a pump pleura scan, you know, when they've been stabbed in the thorax and our, our clinicians are looking for a pneumothorax uh, or uh, some, some cardiac injury. Blunt patients often or undifferentiated shock patients often get the full protocol, but we allow clinicians to determine what their clinical question is and whether a point of care ultrasound will help them in answering that question. And then they dive in and they can scan that element. Quite frequently though, what we're seeing more from our data is that clinicians more and more are delivering the full protocol. The full protocol can be delivered in roughly about 60 seconds. It's very simple, it's very straightforward. And of course, as you've said already, it's very repeatable. What we instill in our clinicians is two things. One is that uh, you know, pay, the, the evidence and the data in the hyperacute phase of trauma and point of care ultrasound, there is no data there. And so we often get to the patient's bedside 10, 12, 15 minutes after their injury. So a negative scan does not does not necessarily always reassure you that there isn't an injury there so that the scanning is repeatable. The other thing that we train our clinicians is to 
only hand over positive findings in hospital, but not negative findings. So for example, if you've identified a cardiac injury or a pneumothorax or a hemoperitoneum, hand that over to the receiving hospital team. But if you haven't, we don't hand that over because we want and expect those in-hospital teams to repeat their scans down the line, particularly if the patient's physiology changes or any other element of their condition changes. And we don't want to wrong foot the in-hospital teams by them going, oh, well, the pre-hospital teams scanned this guy's belly and it was absolutely fine, you know, half an hour ago. We could, can't really explain his tachycardia. Maybe he's just in pain now. And actually what we'd really like is that in-hospital team to be going, this guy's condition has changed from how he was half an hour ago. We should re-scan him and have a look. And we've had one or two cases, and this is interesting. We had a chap uh, stabbed in the left flank, and here we, we were at his bedside, you know, pre-hospital within 12 minutes or something after his injury. He seemed to have uh, peritonism when he was examined, uh, and he had a mechanism of injury that was highly suspicious for it, you know, an injury in his left flank, something in the kidney or something in the spleen. But his initial pre-hospital ultrasound, his hemo, you know, he was negative for a hemoperitoneum. But 45 minutes later in the emergency department, he had a positive fast and he needed to be taken to theater for a laparotomy. So cases like this just reassure and reaffirm for us that negative findings need to be guarded with suspicion. But positive findings are, of course, very helpful diagnostically and in determining treatment trajectory. So... Uh, I'm going to throw out some of the numbers because we review our data every six months. But, um, you know, in, in a six month period towards the tail end of last year, we picked up 16 cardiac tamponades. Uh, and I'm really pleased to say that all but one of those patients survived. Uh, so because what happens is uh, either they get their, their thoracotomy pre-hospital uh, or they get an expedited pathway straight into an emergency theater when they hit uh, hit a hospital instead of having a pit stop in the ED and a CT scan and various other things. One of those patients arrested, got a thoracotomy, and unfortunately had a, a you know hypoxic brain injury, didn't survive. But actually, to see that volume of cardiac tamponades, 15, 16 tamponades every six months, and that's not including our patients who were found peri-arrest or in arrest who got a tamponade. So we're a, we're a service that sees a high volume of cardiac injury. We see a high volume of patients with cardiac injury with pericardial collection that we can identify pre-hospital and we can expedite their pathway into the hospital to receive you know, an emergency surgery in the timescale that they need it. Uh, so, so we have a very specific protocol, just to round off and come back to answering your question, we have a very didactic protocol uh, and we have stripped out the sort of complex uh, uh, and multimodal uh, modality of point of care ultrasound and we have turned it into a really tight, narrow, binary, black and white, yes, no, go, no, go decision process where we then deploy the ultrasound in under a minute to answer very focused questions and then direct our next clinical actions. I mean, Dan, there's multiple things there, but one of the things you just mentioned is that in fact, like I said, it, because it is didactic and quick, I think some of the, uh, some of the literature and indeed um, data from um, what Zane was talking about, Zane Perkins uh, and others, is that actually we need to catch these patients early on in their, in their trajectory. So like, really interesting, like I said, if it's a negative finding, but with a mechanism of injury, don't attribute the heuristic of there is no collection or indeed there is no, there is no bleeding. It's just, it's just maybe not occurring now. 
but that like i said that quick relook in five minutes because yeah i think one of the seminal pieces of well revelations to my mind was that actually you have to the, the survivability rests with early intervention when you do see a positive finding and it's that it's that early decision making that this the trajectory is going down and quickly it's you know it's altering and quickly right let's let's get to them pre-arrest let's open them up maybe pre-arrest because that's where the survivorship uh lies C- could you maybe speak to that absolutely and and i'd say there's two areas where i've seen our care the way we deliver care start to change since we've introduced ultrasound and i'll come back to the cardiac one because it's a sort of more interesting one but our baseline protocol for patients in undifferentiated shock, once they get intubated, they often just get bilateral open thoracostomies to decompress, you know, either known or suspected pneumothoraces. We've actually dialed back on how many open thoracostomies we deliver because once we put the tube in and we're ventilating them, we can actually scan them and go, yeah, there definitely is a pneumothorax on the right side, for example. Let's deliver a thoracostomy. Oh, hang on, there is actually nothing going on here on the left side. It looks pretty good. His chest feels okay. I've got some good lung sliding. I've got some good B lines. Actually, this guy does not need a thoracostomy on this side. So we are seeing a reduction in the number of open, open thoracostomies we're delivering since, uh, since we've introduced ultrasound. And the second thing is exactly that, as you've alluded to. We're picking up an astonishing number of tamponades. In fact, just this week, we were reviewing the scans, and we've got a patient that just this week uh, was attended to by one of our teams. The scan is beautiful. He has he has a beating heart thrashing away in a lake of blood inside of his uh, inside of his pericardium. They were far from hospital. It completely influenced their decision whether to take him by road or whether to take him by air. And he was flown. Uh, he was only in the aircraft for about three minutes, but he was flown straight to a major trauma center. He was taken straight into the cardiothoracic theater and had a had a sternotomy and he had a right ventricle wound which was repaired and I think he's already he might even be home already (laughs) so we're seeing a lot of that sort of thing and we've had several cases where our clinicians have attended patients and the patients are moribund they're peri-arrest but they're not in cardiac arrest yet we put the ultrasound on them we've identified them in tamponade and we have delivered their, their thoracotomy pre-hospital before they have suffered their cardiac arrest. We have relieved that tamponade and those patients have all gone home. Uh, so what we are seeing is as we, we've always known trauma is a time critical disease, but you know the, the data and the literature you're referring to from Zane is even more uh, in, in stabbed heart patients is even more emphasized for us, the uh, time critical nature of these patients. And we are seeing uh, more and more that we are identifying patients pre-hospital who are peri-arrest but not in arrest who have an, a, a clearly identifiable diagnostic uh, you know, uh, intervention in point of care ultrasound and we can see their tamponade and we deliver their thoracotomy and we actually deliver a survivor to hospital uh, who's already actually had his critical intervention and he then goes to the operating theater to be sort of more formally repaired. And those patients, all of the patients in our series um have survived that have had an intervention just like that so um dan you speak to the you know the governance around you know reviewing the scans and i think that's super important because like you said is the retrospective case analysis you can start to learn from reviewing yeah what was your decision making 
when you saw this picture? What was your decision making in five minutes? Could you maybe speak to the governance piece? Because I think it's really important as part of the case review, but also the the, the sequential decision making uh, from from the clinician. Absolutely. So this is my second most favorite bit about our, our process is our governance around it. So we've created what I like to call a governance onion around our point of care ultrasound. So we suffer a, a slightly unique challenge in our service um, <clears throat> in that some of our registrars that come and join our service, they come for six months secondment. We have a roughly 50-50 split between emergency physicians and anesthetists. And as I say, most of the emergency physicians, if they have completed their training, they are formally accredited in ultrasound. Not all of the uh, anesthetists are. And while anesthetists use a lot of ultrasound for regional anesthesia and various other elements, they uh, don't necessarily do point of care ultrasound for diagnostics the way emergency physicians do. Uh, now, typically, when you are getting accredited in ultrasound in the United Kingdom, you have to do a two or three day residential course. You then have to find a mentor. And then you spend, you know, several months usually doing 50, usually somewhere around about 50 scans that have to be mentored and reviewed by your mentor uh, before you would be sort of signed off and formally accredited. So we don't have the luxury of that amount of time and we don't have the luxury of that, that infrastructure to be able to deliver some of, some of the, some things like that. So what happens is we end up having registrars arriving who are not necessarily formally accredited in point of care ultrasound. So um, we have to find a way of ensuring that they can practice safely within, within a governance envelope that allows us to make sure that what they're doing, their decision making is correct. So we train them, uh, we train them in their, in their pre sign off period, which is around about four to six weeks at the start when they join the service. Uh, and in that period, there is a there is a piece on ultrasound training. There are some uh, standard operating procedures and protocols that they must uh, they must read and then be tested on. There is a uh, web link which has a, a portal that we built with uh, with videos uh, and loops and clips and of how we deliver point of care ultrasound uh, that they have to go through. Uh, and then they have to have a practical session with one of the senior clinicians, uh, one of the senior consultants in the service. Uh, to test them and train them uh, and support them in being brought up to a minimum standard uh, to deliver the ultrasound. The next bit uh, is then the governance piece. And that's, that's, as I say, is what I call the governance onion. And what happens is every single scan that is done within the service is reviewed by a point of care ultrasound expert. So we have a, point, we have a panel of experts and every week on a weekly basis, uh, an expert reviews all of the scans from the week before. So when a clinician does a scan, they have to complete a document about what the clinical scenario was and what they were looking for when they did the scan and what they thought they identified and saw uh, when they did their scanning. So every week, uh, an expert uh, looks at all of the scans uh, that the service does in the previous week and then goes through the clinician data and then reviews the scans and then provides feedback to each individual clinician on their scanning episodes, okay? And then we review that data as well. So, uh, and we sort of do that biannually. We used to do it quarterly, but we moved to biannually because we're seeing very sort of consistent trends now. So the first layer of governance is that there is a reviewer layer around the clinicians. So even if you're pretty amateur at point of care ultrasound, 
we've audited and evaluated our training piece and we've demonstrated through audit that our training piece is adequate to take people from a sort of a three out of 10 in terms of confidence and skill to an eight or eight and a half out of 10 in terms of confidence and skills. So we're pretty confident in our training piece. Then every single scan, and we're, we're just approaching, uh, we've come this September, we'll have been running point of care ultrasound in the service for two years. And we are at just, uh, just under 900 total scans that we've delivered. Now that would be total scan, total scan episodes. If you were to look at where we have scanned, um, uh, where we have scanned just a single part of the protocol as opposed to the full protocol, we're well over a thousand scanning episodes. Uh, so, so we do a high volume of scans. We're doing roughly uh, on average somewhere between eight to 15 a week. And uh, so every single so so every single scan is reviewed by an expert, and there is individual feedback to the clinicians. And we look at the correlation between the clinicians and the reviewers. The second layer of the uh, governance onion is that there is a reviewer of the reviewers. So first of all, the clinicians are reviewed by a panel of reviewers, and then quarterly or biannually, we have an external point of care ultrasound expert who's not affiliated to Bart's Health, who's not affiliated to the Air Ambulance, so has no allegiance, no conflicts of interest. He then reviews the, rev the reviewer's feedback and he reviews where there have been discrepancies, where there's been disagreements. Uh, and we, we then review the reviewers. So our clinicians get reviewed by experts and our reviewers get rev reviewed by an external expert. And in this way, uh, we, we have a look at, at you know, you know, we take a sample of scans where there's been agreement and we take, a, we take all of the scans where there's been a disagreement between the clinician and the reviewer and we re-review those. And in fact, in all of those scanning episodes, our reviewer of the reviewers has only found one scan where he's disagreed with the reviewer. We obviously find several scans where we disagree with the clinicians, but, uh, and as I say, I reviewed the data sort of every couple of months, but we have now shown in our last review uh, and fairly consistently now that when it comes to pump scans, our reviewers agree with our clinicians 99% of the time and disagree with them only 1% of the time. And with our pleura or our pouring blood scans, our reviewers agree with our clinicians about 90% of the time and disagree with them about 10% of the time. And of course, anytime there's a disagreement that is then formally fed back to the clinicians and every week the clinicians get an email back with all of the scans that were done for the week for the whole service and all of the reviewer feedback so all of the all of the clinicians are learning from all of the scans and each other but they are also getting direct bespoke feedback from an expert on a weekly basis on every individual scan that they've done so the way we get around uh you know, mentoring and formally training and accrediting and signing off people is that we have a limited training piece, although we have demonstrated that it's a sufficient training piece for our purposes. And then we have this layered onion of governance around the clinicians to keep them safe and secure and make sure that they're fed back to uh, on every case that they deliver a point of care ultrasound on. So we keep a very tight governance process to ensure we don't make mistakes and that we pick up discrepancies and that we feed back on a teaching and training level to our clinicians all of the time. Um, and what's been interesting about that uh, is that, you know, we're a doctor paramedic based service 
And, um, you know, in the beginning, there are several of our paramedics who are advanced paramedic practitioners and who've got variable levels of ultrasound skills. But many of our paramedics are novices when it comes to ultrasound when they start with us. We uh, allow POCUS to be used by all comers in the service. So paramedics, doctors, any of the clinicians in the team are welcome to use the ultrasound. We train all of them. Uh, and it's quite reassuring to see that now as many as 25% of our scans are delivered by paramedics. It has historically been higher than that. At one point, as, as many as 50% of our scans were being delivered by paramedics. And several of our paramedics have gone on to do advanced and higher training in ultrasound get formally accredited with ultrasound and have really embraced uh, point of care ultrasound as an additional skill and something that they've developed a particular special interest in. Uh, and, and despite, you know, as many as, uh, you know, 25, 30% and upwards, you know, at times 50% of our scanning episodes being done by paramedics who were originally no novices, we still maintain a 90% correlation between, uh, you know, our reviewers and our clinicians, which is really good and really reassuring. Uh, it reassures us our training piece is adequate, but it also reassures us, you know, that our governance piece is adequate. But also, I suppose if you if you thought about it, we're being very simple, we're being very binary, and we're very basic and straightforward in what we're doing. You know, we're not doing complex valve areas or looking at regurgitant fractions or stuff like that. It's not too difficult to train someone to put a probe on and go, is there a collection around the heart? Is there not? Is the heart beating nicely? Is it not? That sort of thing. But for our services, as I said, a primary response, dedicated trauma service, we feel we have created a process and a protocol that allows us to add point of care ultrasound as a very good adjunct to sort of our patient care picture. So looking at the, um, so what I like about that as well, Dan, is that it, it's not formulaic as far as, you know, you have to be prescriptive to put to, to scan a patient in, you know, in the first minute or the first two minutes, it, you know, you can, it can be adjunctive as and when it's appropriate, but do you, do you have sort of key metrics? So it sounds like, you know, you know, a, you want these patients to be scanned, which is completely understandable because it's the only through the aggregation of data to your earlier point that we're going to start to get leverage on where, where the utility is, where the decision making is, where the the the, the false positives, where the um, the true positives are, are, are going to be identified, and, and and just just start to assess the data. Do you uh, have you written it into the SOPs? And if, if so, how does the SOP look from a yeah prescriptive versus non prescriptive? Does it does it just say that you know the modified rush just has to occur at some point in that patient trajectory? Yeah, no, we're not. And that's possibly an area still for development. I mean, you know, we've got a we've got a broad range of clinicians in our service. Some of them did their training before ultrasound uh, was formally a thing. Some of them have never been formally trained or accredited in ultrasound. And they are now seasoned, experienced consultants for some decades now. We obviously have the uh, typical with most novel interventions, we have the early adopters. And then we have the people at the back who need to be dragged, kicking and screaming into the 21st century. So <laughs> we suffer the same vagaries of any other system and, and anywhere else. One of the things we don't do, uh, and I'm not, I'm still kind of uh, ambivalent about where we need to go with that, but one of the things we don't do is be that specific or didactic about the use of the ultrasound, because mm -hmm. sometimes in our clinical environment, 
the patient is diagnostically very clear and the ultrasound does not add very much. And so the time and energy required to, to do a scan when it won't add anything is not helpful, particularly in these complex patients that are requiring a lot of work. Um, so we don't say, the two things we don't say is that that you whether you have to or don't have to use the ultrasound, obviously, I mean, uh, you know, I'm an enthusiast and I recommend it and I scan just about all of my patients, uh, but we don't necessarily tell the clinicians, you must use the ultrasound on every patient encounter. Uh, and so we don't, uh, we don't. Um, and the other thing that we are not very didactic about is when in the job cycle you use the ultrasound, because our jobs are just too diverse to be able to say that. Sometimes there's a prolonged extrication rescue period uh, sometimes the patients are stable enough to package and move to hospital. And we're always mindful that we don't want to delay scene times any longer. We don't want to spend any more time on the scene than is absolutely necessary. We readily encourage scanning the patients in the back of the ambulance en route to hospital. And I would say typically that's probably where about 60 to 70% of our scans get done. Equally, the clinical context of the job and the clinical picture of the patient might, you know, clearly dictate or mandate that you should scan this patient here and now. Uh, there are two other things that we use our ultrasound for. One is for vascular access. We place a lot of arterial lines uh, in our traumatic brain injury population and in our patients where we think we may place a Reboa balloon, which is an endovascular balloon in the aorta. So we do, we use um, our ultrasound for that. And we also use our ultrasound in cardiac arrest. Uh, so, you know, typically we'd image the heart and we might image, you know, to see where we think the patient's bled from or bleeding or, you know, in cardiac arrest. And so some of those jobs, so by virtue of the clinical picture and the clinical context of the job or simply where you are in the building or wherever, that it mandates where you do your, your scan. But we don't, you know, I, in the beginning, I used to say it's not clear enough where ultrasound fits into our into our clinical workflow to be able to be clear enough about it. Even nearly two years on, it's still very difficult to be too didactic about when, where, and how we use the ultrasound. Um, I prefer, I suppose, to take a softer approach in that the ultrasound, certainly from the data and from the clinician experiences, uh, you know, sort of wins them over in terms of its value, and they tend to use it more and more as they get on with their secondments with us. But we don't say you must, you know, you go to patients, truck's gone over someone's legs, you know, their pelvis, belly, head, chest are all fine. We don't insist you've got to scan that guy. Like, we, you know, we don't do that. Uh, and on the other hand, you know, sometimes you've got a binary question. You do one scan, it answers your question, that's it. So we're not didactic about using it and we're not didactic about where in the job cycle you must use it. We just train them. We strongly recommend it. And what tends to happen is it sells itself because in the complex jobs, they use the ultrasound and they're like, oh my God, wow, that, I didn't see that there. I wouldn't have known that was there. And then, you know, they are slowly won over if they aren't already sort of zealots. There are still some clinicians in our service who are not confident, who are not, I wouldn't say not competent because we've trained them all, but um, yeah, and certainly inside of our governance onion, I'd be happy for them to do scans, but it's mostly a confidence thing. And then sometimes there is this illusion of it prolonging scene time, but we've worked pretty hard to make sure that our teams don't do that. And if if it's just a nice to have scan, well, do it in the truck on the way to hospital. You know, if it's a, I need to know the answer to this question right now. And the only thing that will tell me is if I can look inside this body cavity and get an answer, then I'm like, well, then there and there, you've got to do your scan. Like that is, you know, that's clear to me. 
Uh, so, you know, we, we're like any other organization. We've got people who are, are still, still not, not zealots. Uh, and then we've got, you know, several enthusiasts who, you know, you know, who are also highly skilled, who will um, do all sorts of scans outside and out with our protocol. So our protocol is our entry level. And we say that is the minimum scanning you should do. If people are skilled and competent beyond that, well, we will review those scans and give them feedback just like we would any other. And we encourage them to scan as much as they want to. But the bar is set intentionally low to answer binary questions so that all comers can pick up the probe and confidently approach the patient. So Dan, looking at just a couple more questions really before we come into land. Where do you see uh, ultrasound going within within pre-hospital care? question and i kind of think that it depends on your service and what your service does you know i'm aware of other air ambulance services slightly north of us they use ultrasound to place uh you know to place lines to place central lines to place uh, arterial access we've recently moved to doing a lot more radial arterial access for traumatic brain injury patients so isolated head injury isolated tbi <clears throat> very uh, tightly controlled blood pressure control, so arterial line, rapid sequence induction and intubation. Um, so, um, you know, for our service, I think at the minute we're probably we're probably about evenly balanced for what we should be doing and the kind of questions we kind of want to answer for the patient profile. There's several things we've thought of including, like when we put a Reboa in, should we be scanning the abdomen and looking where in the aorta the balloon is and that sort of thing. And I think there's scope to expand some of that. I think there's always a tipping point with interventions. Uh, and uh, ultrasound is no different. I think, you know, we could scan all sorts of things. You know, you could scan the eyeball and, you know, look for, you know, you could measure the, uh, the ocular nerve and in patients with suspected, you know, elevated intracranial pressure, we could scan, uh, you know, we could scan the aorta, we could scan, you, know, you could scan every kidney. We could, there's a lot of things we could do, but I think there's a tipping point beyond which you start to move into, into the law of diminishing returns, where you start to get a lot less bang for your buck and I think that's one of the sort of risks of something like ultrasound, because the more you become knowledgeable and skilled, well, there is no limit to what you can have a look at, you know, with the right probe uh, and, and access to a body part, you can, you can pretty much scan anything. So I think there's a tipping point beyond which, you know, it, it will stop adding value and it will just add time and complexity unnecessarily. So I think for us at the moment, I mean, we're still pretty early in our ultrasound journey. We're coming up for two years, but I kind of feel that we've struck it, you know, and it's been a learning, it's been a learning journey, but I think we've, for what we're doing and for the kind of work we do, we're probably doing the right stuff at the minute. We've, you know, there are things being talked about in our service, as you say, early femoral access, um, extracorporeal life support, or, you know, all sorts of other things where ultrasound is undeniably going to play a role. I would like to see more ultrasound, as you say, in the hands of the advanced care paramedics and that sort of thing. Because if you know an advanced care team's coming and you've got a you know a mechanism of injury like a truck over a patient, you know one of the things we're going to do is put an early femoral access in and be concerned about is this a potential robot patient. So we've already seen, you know, in our work, our advanced paramedic practitioners in London 
it's great arriving on a job where one of them has been there before us because the patient is prepped for the RSI, for example. So they've been, you know, they're skin to scoop, they're uh, immobilized, they've got two cannulas, they've got the full gamut of monitoring on, like we literally arrive and they're like, yeah, they're good for the RSI, you know? And this would be no different. I mean, if you're carrying an ultrasound device as an APP and you, you know you've got a crushed pelvis, well, for us to arrive and you've already got the arterial line inserted and connected, well, you know, what a win. And all of this is about cutting down time to critical intervention and time to surgical hemorrhage control and time to definitive care. So anything that would do that, I would say, you know, can be put into the hands. Uh, and this is the thing that's been interesting in our journey, particularly with our paramedics, is that, you know, we had a lot of people who were ultrasound naive, who were very intimidated in the beginning and these are some of our the images some of them produce now are some of our best scanners in the service much better than some of the doctors to be perfectly honest so uh, and you know they've just taken hold of an intervention that is fairly easy to learn uh, and it's it's an intervention that the more you do the better you get uh, and the more they scan the more the confidence builds and the better they get at imaging the patients uh, and there's no limit to this so i don't I don't currently have any like grand designs for the future of ultrasound in terms of like we're going to suddenly start, I don't know, ultrasounding, uh, I don't know, the ear or something. But, um, I, you know, for our service, I think we're at the right place. You know, we tend to put a lot of, you know, uh, let's say landmark guided uh, subclavian trauma lines. So we wouldn't we don't use it for line placement. We do use it for arterial access. But there are other services that serve, you know, a high volume medical cardiac arrest population and placement of an early uh, central line using ultrasound to confirm the placement of that line is, you know, is a key part of their work. And so this is the nice thing about ultrasound. It has a broad utility across the specialties uh, and it just kind of depends on your work volume and what you want to get out of it. But I, I think there, the, the, it, we're limited only by coming to that tipping point where we start to approach the law of diminishing returns, where we're going to start spending more time and energy doing more complex scanning for less return on that investment. Uh, and that's the only place where I, I think you've got to be a little bit weary. But otherwise, I mean, you know, the world's your oyster really when it comes to when it comes to ultrasound. So we just finish off, Dan, could you maybe just speak to a few take-home messages just for listeners, just around, um, like, like you said, just the the utility as you see it and or um the the adage of ultrasound because like you said there's there was quite a lot of non-believers and uh there's early adopters and non-believers but more adopters now than non-believers but could you could you maybe speak to just a few sort of salient take-home points for listeners yeah um i think uh i mean i've heard it said you know the ultrasound uh, machine is the modern day stethoscope i mean I'm a, I'm a dinosaur myself. I grew up in an area without ultrasound and, uh, and I'm obviously an ultrasound enthusiast. I still love my stethoscope, obviously. But, you know, we're, we're in 2023. Like to go out to a trauma patient uh, or a medical patient who's in cardiac arrest or critically unwell, uh, we have the capacity, you know, a lot of the time we're like, oh, we need to get them to hospital, get them in the CT scanner. Well, you can look right inside a body cavity right now with a device that's no bigger than your cell phone in your hand. Like, why would you not? You know, it's a bit like, yes, we can bag someone all the way to hospital on an ambi bag, but like it's 2023, we've all got ventilators. Like, why would you not? So I guess one of the take homes is that, um, 
you know, get into the 21st century. This is a piece of tech that's here and it's here to stay. Uh, the second thing is I would say is just don't be, a, don't be afraid. Uh, it is pretty intimidating when you know very little about ultrasound, but go on a course, get trained, pick up the probe, and the more you do, the better you get. Uh, there is, you know, an infinite number of YouTube videos out there to teach you stuff and show you stuff. And ultrasound's really nice, and it's, it's all about pattern recognition. And the more scans you do of normal people and normal bodies, the minute you do a scan that's abnormal, you go, oh, whoa, hang on. That's, I've seen a hundred and that didn't look like that, like, and they were normal. So this, there's something going on here. So the beauty of ultrasound is it's, you know, it's reproducible, it's repeatable, and it's all pattern recognition. Uh, so there's plenty of materials out there to learn. So just pick up a probe and get scanning, get trained, get into it. Um, I guess those would be my two take on points, really. I mean, it's here, it's here to stay. It's got infinite number of capabilities and don't be afraid of it. Uh, just we're all on a learning journey, you know, pick up a probe, get in the game. Uh, it's here to stay. Dan, thanks for your time today. Really do appreciate it. And indeed your perspectives and insights are fascinating. So thank you. Thanks very much for having me. Take it easy. You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network.